It's your Wednesday daily delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Glad to be back for another day. Hope you guys are as well. Thank you, as always, for listening, for sticking with me. Um, good show today. Jeff Day from the Star Tribune, a multi-platform editor who helps cover the Gophers volleyball team, a beat that's become more interesting, I think, as time has gone on and is certainly interesting this year with the arrival of new head coach Keegan Cook. Um, Jeff and I will talk about the upcoming season. The Gophers open on Friday against TCU. That is at the Sports Pavilion, the Maturi, uh, Maturi Pavilion, I should say. And um, just a, a lot of anticipation for what's ahead for this program. Um, a, long, a long history of success, but now Keegan Cook taking over for head coach Hugh McCutcheon. What does that mean for this season? What new wrinkles will he bring to the program? And things like that. So Jeff and I will get into that and more here in just a little bit. A controversial links game. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And a well-told sad story by Patrick Royce. We'll get to that at the end of the show. First, though, what did I miss? Twins lose 7-3 to the Brewers and really one inning. And maybe one decision tells the story in this game. Twins had a 3-2 lead going into the sixth inning. Bailey Ober... Not a good first inning. Gave up a couple of walks and a home run. Um, the first walk was before the home run. So two run first inning. Twins tied it on a Christian Vasquez home run a little bit later. Make it two to two and then went ahead uh, an inning or two later. So they get to the sixth and it's um, and it's three two twins. Ober has been much better since that first inning. He'd retired Eight batters in a row. He'd only given up two hits in the entire game. So that one home run in the first inning and then one hit the rest of the way through four. He's sitting at 78 pitches, which is okay for five innings, I think. Like not not cause for serious alarm. And Ober, probably like a lot of Twins fans watching the game, um, had this mindset going into the, uh, the bottom of the sixth, Ober quote from Bobby Nightingale's story in the Star Tribune. I was expecting to go out for the sixth. I was about to take a couple steps out of the dugout. They told me to stay put, and someone else was coming into the game. That someone else ended up being Dylan Floro, uh, acquired by the Twins in the Jorge Lopez trade. Really the only move they made before the trade deadline, and it did not go well. Dylan Flora gave up a couple hard hits to start the inning. A lot of soft contact after that, but it didn't really matter. The Brewers were putting the ball in play. They were generating a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of hits through and over um, over infielders, and ended up being a five run sixth inning. That ends up being the entire rest of the scoring for the whole game. A seven three loss for the Twins. That to me underscores both a maybe a, a problem with philosophy and a problem with roster construction. The philosophy problem is this. Now, um, Baldelli conceded that a little bit of what, into the, what went into the decision was they're worried about the number of innings that Ober is going to end up throwing this season. He's, you know, a guy who's in his first full major league season, hasn't thrown a ton of innings in his career, is well over 100 this year, which, again, 
isn't that much in the history of baseball, but is suddenly a lot in the modern game. Um, if he keeps on pace and makes another, you know, five or seven starts the rest of the season, probably push himself up over, you know, 160, 170. Again, thresholds that don't seem unreasonable, but that the Twins and, you know, other organizations to a certain degree have deemed um, markers of, hey, we got to watch out for this. So they're maybe trying to limit his work. The problem with that is this. It's August twenty. 20- third today it was august 22nd of the game you are still trying to win this division and you know and rocco Baldelli said you know we are still trying to win this ball game that is first and foremost but if if a pitcher's innings and pitch count is in the back of your mind when you're making these decisions on august 22nd and you're still you're still nowhere near clinching this division you're in a, in a good position you were six games up going into the night. <clears throat> oh, by the way, you're five games up now on the Guardians and just seven on Detroit. Watch out for Detroit because they're playing better than anybody else, I think, right now in the division, aside from the Twins, who have still been a pretty good team since the All-Star break. But if you're if you're so focused on the future right now on August 23rd, now August 22nd when it happened, that's a problem to me. That's a, that's a philosophical problem to me. Let Bailey Ober pitch another inning right now. If you get to September 15th and you have an eight-game division lead, something like that, if you have done all the things you need to do for the next three weeks to make this a near certainty or certainty, that's when you start making all the decisions to rest guys, to make sure that they're fresh for the postseason, to make sure they're not being overly taxed for their future. Let's not make those decisions in August when you're still trying to win the division. So that's problem number one for me. Problem number two for me is that if you take Dylan Floro, I'm sorry, if you take Bailey Ober out of the game after five innings, after 78 pitches, after two hits and two runs, you probably are conceding that you need four relief pitchers. Unless something gets out of hand one way or the other, you're going to have to use four high leverage relief pitchers. As it turns out, they only really had to use one because Dylan Floro had a blow-up inning, um, and it ends up being 7-3. They don't have to use these other guys. But if you end up um, taking Bailey Ober out, you have to have four guys in the bullpen that you really trust. Name four Twins relief pitchers that you trust right now in the bullpen to pitch in high-leverage situations. I don't know if I can. And that's a problem with roster construction. That's a problem with they didn't go get one or two really you know, seventh, eighth, ninth inning guys at the trade deadline that they probably should have. Because guess what? When you get to the postseason, when you get to these September games, there's going to be more starts like this. There's going to be deeper at bats. There's going to be games where your starter goes five innings, 99 pitches, has given you maximum effort, and you have to get 12 outs from your bullpen. This was not one of those games. But the larger point is this. I don't know if you have four guys that you trust to get to the end of a game like that. I think you trust... Joan Duran, although he's not been as dominant lately, I think you're starting to maybe try to trust Emilio Pagan, even though that's a dangerous, slippery slope. I think you'd love to trust Griffin Jacks, but he's had some blow-up innings lately. I think you trust Caleb Thielbar in certain situations, but I don't know who else beyond that you really trust right now. And I don't know if you have complete trust in all four of those guys. Some of those, some of that trust is pretty shaky because of recent results or past results. So the more you can get out of your starters, and listen, the Twins have gotten a lot out of their starters this year. They pitched, they've pitched the third most innings in the majors. So I'm not saying this is a everyday problem. What I'm saying is this. I don't think you have the relief pitchers that you can trust. And I think if you are starting to watch your, your, your innings already in August, that's a problem. Get yourself to September. Get yourself a bigger lead. Get yourself to a point where you have two or three weeks where the leverage isn't as high. That's where you ease off a little bit. Right now, 
win these games because you just gave away a game yesterday. You gave away a game that was imminently winnable. You gave away a game that suddenly gave new life to the teams that are chasing you, even if it is just, you know, five and seven back now. You've got six against Cleveland coming up here very soon. Cleveland can erase your lead in one or two weeks really fast if they get on a hot streak. you got to take these wins where you can get them. you got to take them where they are. I don't think the Twins seize that opportunity on uh, on Tuesday night, and I think that is a problem. The Lynx, meanwhile, had a controversial finish, held on to beat Dallas 91-86. Dallas had handed the Lynx a whopping lopsided loss at Target Center earlier this year. A lot of tension in this game. Two teams battling for the playoffs, battling for playoff position, and it showed. The Lynx held on to win, but there was some tension. Bridget Carlton ejected late in the game for a flagrant foul. Um, Satu Sabali makes free throws, gets gets Dallas closer. She's upset with Lynx fans who are cheering for her injury. She calls them disgusting on Twitter, or X if you prefer to call it now, uh, after the game. A lot of tensions in this game. I think the bigger takeaway is the Lynx do get the win, 91-86. Lynx players and head coach Cheryl Reeves saying, hey, <clears throat> fans, you can't be cheering for someone else's injury. I think three Lynx fans got ejected from the stands from this game. Like, what What a wild finish to what was a tense but, uh, but, but well-played WNBA game at Target Center. Lynx do... Hold on to that win, though. Still firmly in playoff position, 16 and 17 right now. They would be, looks like, you know, the sixth or seventh seed if the playoffs started. Um, <clears throat> you know, fifth or sixth seed right now if the playoffs started tomorrow. They'd be in decent shape. But, uh, yeah, you can't be cheering for injuries. Can't be doing stuff like that. A tense game, though. You don't really see that. And uh, it's it's kind of uh, you know not fun to see that uh, that level of uh, of animosity, but uh, it is kind of fun to see um, something a little bit different every once in a while, and that was certainly something we saw on on Tuesday night at Target Center. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. It's good to be joined again by Jeff Day, Star Tribune sports writer and editor. I think we officially call you a multi-platform editor, but I don't know if that really... I, don't, I know what that means, but I don't think it does. I don't think it does you justice, Jeff, because you do you do a lot. But you, you appear on this podcast uh, some. You've done a few really good things with me here lately, and I wanted to talk to you again about Gopher volleyball because that season is right around the corner on Friday. And as we've talked about, Jeff, a program that's really raising its profile, um, if that's even possible. But I just feel like it's it's seeped even more into the public consciousness over the last two, three, four years and is now like really one of those kind of programs on campus that we pay attention to and for good reason. Um, but um, a lot of interesting things with this team that we will definitely get into a new head coach, uh, Keegan cook that you profiled in Monday's uh, Monday star tribune and on, on star tribune.com. Um, Jeff, w- welcome. And what do you, what do you think of the season ahead? Cause there sure is some interesting storylines for us to, uh, to dive into. Yeah, um, I went to the scrimmage that they hosted against Northern Iowa on Friday night. And you can just see that the team has a great deal of talent, but 
um, is still in discovery mode, if you will. Um, and part of that is just the nature of uh, college athletics these days. Rosters have turnover. Um, but I think the bigger thing here is that um, you did have this transitionary time between two coaching staffs. And what that created was roster movement that maybe was more aggressive than you might have typically seen if there was some continuity. Maybe not. I mean, who knows exactly. But they lose two very crucial players. You get this uh, influx of three new transfers. Um, you have two freshmen uh, that seem like you know they can play now if they needed to. On top of that, you have a whole slew of returning players that have extremely high expectations. So on Friday, I was watching thinking, this is going to be fun, especially early. They play a really challenging schedule. And you can just tell that there's an element of what combinations are going to work, who's going to be out here. I think it's going to I think there's going to be some fluctuation in, in lineups and and mixing and matching. Um, and I just think they're an exciting team. I think that despite the losses, you know, you think about losing uh, players that have the kind of pedigree and 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 you know, accolades that a Carter Booth and a Jenna Wenis have. And you're like, wow, how does a team rebound from that? Um, I think they have. I think they're going to be very dangerous. I don't know what their ceiling is. I think it's hard to know college athlete, college volleyball in particular. Um, there's some top heaviness to the talent pools. There's really, really elite teams at the very top, um, you know, and and that that is spreading more so you can feel it. We'll see like on TCU, for instance, when they open the season against them. On Friday, yeah. Yeah, that's an unranked team, but that's a team that people think could have some potential. And last year we saw it like the Gophers lost to Northwestern. Um, they had a couple other matches where they sort of, you know, tripped up a little bit, not just losing to the blue blood programs. Um, so this is a long winded answer of just saying that they're going to be challenged early. And I think on top of the excitement of the matches that they're playing, there's going to be a lot of excitement about what is this roster? Who is going to sort of start to identify themselves? Or is it going to be a team that really relies on, call it nine, 10 people to <laughs> to give you something on a given night? I mean, I do think there is room for a lot of these players to get time on the court, depending on matchups and depending on, on who's playing. Because top to bottom, the depth of the roster is really solid. Now, you profiled Keegan Cook, their new head coach, you talked about. You followed him kind of throughout the offseason, kind of saw what he had to go through just to kind of get this roster assembled, but also kind of start to, you know, enforce is the wrong word, but kind of like imprint his style or kind of, you know, communicate how he wants his program run. And I'm sure there's some differences to how he runs things versus how Hugh McCutcheon ran things, although it does seem like they have some similarities as well. As you've kind of studied Keegan Cook so far, how would you describe kind of that transition and, you know, what what he wants out of this team, either just on its own or how that might be different or similar to to how Hugh McCutcheon had a lot of success here. Yeah, I, um, you know, the, the you and King Cook were generous with access. So I got to see a little bit um, throughout the past eight months. I've kind of just anytime they would let me poke my head and I poked my head in. And um, he uh, the first thing that I will say, and this is not to, this is not an ageism thing. It just is the nature of it. This is a young coaching staff. The, there is a certain kind of um, vibrancy that is coming with some of these coaches who now Keegan Cook comes from a very well pedigreed coaching lineage. You know, he has been in in fantastic coaching situations and and shown his ability, but. Um, 
I think that the rest of the coaching staff has kind of seen a really great opportunity here. And I think they have formed a really cohesive unit. So while Cook is the profile piece, when I was in the gym, the thing that I was picking up on was just energy. People who are like excited about a very big opportunity that is fresh to them. Um, McCutcheon and the Hawks, who are some of the best coaches in college volleyball, some of the best recruiters in college volleyball, had been doing it here for a decade, you know. Um, they were a known entity. What you get with a new coaching staff, even if it is somebody like Cook, um, is a freshness, a kind of set of of new ideas, new energy coming into a gym. This was relayed by players who said that while they all had <laughs> Hugh McCutcheon wasn't fired, he wasn't asked. Hugh McCutcheon is one of the greatest coaches ever. He brought in talent because they wanted to be with him. Um, so you would never hear a player, and this is just true, would never hear a player say there's anything. Um, you know, it wasn't a better or worse kind of analogy between the two coaching staffs. It's kind of like you said, different tactics, um, different energy. I did hear a little bit about just pacing, practice pacing, getting involved, moving quickly, um, having, you know, certain attention to detail um, that was just different between the two coaching staffs. And Cook, I think, um, welcomes that challenge of trying to replace a guy like Hugh McCutcheon. You could pick up on that um, in talking to him, this is not something that he is intimidated by. Um, he is calm in a way that's disconcerting. I think you're like, wow, you just have a very, yeah. <laughs> very centered, very centered nature to yourself. And so I think he took each step along the way as it came over these eight months. I think when you zoom out a little bit, to me at least, um, it becomes more impressive because you know, this was not an easy task to step in and do this. Um, and especially this, I didn't, I didn't touch on this heavily in, in that story, but you know, he would say that he had to keep these players here twice Two transfer portal sessions means that he had to sell them multiple times because you think about someone like Taylor Lanfair, right? You're reigning big 10 player of the year. One of the great college athletes, she has three years of eligibility remaining. That yeah. seems shocking, but she has a red shirt year from an injury and she had a COVID year. So Taylor Lanfair is a. So sophomore or something like that. I can't even really wrap my right. head around the year. That's shocking. Um, yeah. But the other side of that is that meant that if another program wanted to sell her on, hey, you can come here and continue to develop and play three years, she could have easily left. She didn't. She decided to stay. McKenna Walker decided to stay. Melanie Shaftmaster decided to stay. Um, they brought in, you know, I think Kylie Murr is probably the, the biggest name. Um, but Phoebe Ovalier, who is a middle blocker, who is showing some really talent. Lydia Grote, who like I watched her in the and they are exciting. These are talented players coming in as transfers. I think they brought in some high level um, athletes and like, you know, Lydia is the kind of player that starred on the team that she came from. And she's going to come here and get to step into a place where, hey, you don't have to lead your team in kills. You don't have to be the A1 option on this team. You get to come in and just dominate your position because you have you are surrounded by players like a Lanfair or a Wooker or um, any number of you know the players they have returning. So he built the roster in this kind of cauldron of, can I keep this thing afloat? And I think he did a great job with it. Um, and there's a testament to saying, when you replace a person like McCutcheon, there's maybe two ways to view it. One is the cupboard's bare, right? Like we all know that the U has great athletes. So you're coming into a situation where some people from the outside might look and go, what a lucky situation for you yeah. as a coach. The flip side of that is that there is no guarantee anymore in college athletics that any of those athletes are going to stay. You know what I mean? Th yeah. That is over now. 
Um, so he had to work, I think, very hard to maintain that. And so there is an element of, hey, before a game has been played, you have a, you have shown something to these players that they're willing to, to stick with you. So um, to me, it just makes I love it. I think it's so ex- I was I don't know about you. What did you think when McCutcheon resigned? Was there any part of you that wondered, how do you replace a person like this? Well, yeah, and it kind of led into my what I was going to ask you next. I want to get into some of the like the schedule and the the roster now, but I, I think that it's such an unusual thing. You very rarely see a coach who is really highly successful, and maybe you you know you don't necessarily see this coming. Like you might have a a highly successful coach, and then there's like, yeah, they're getting to be retirement age. You kind of see a succession plan. Yes. One or two years down the line, you maybe are grooming an assistant coach or a former assistant who's gone somewhere and done great things to be the next in line. Or what typically happens, I think, in 80 or 90 percent of these job searches is that the team is underperformed in some way or the, the the message needs to change. Like I think of every other probably every other case in in Gophers athletics where there's been a major coaching change lately, like women's basketball, things just weren't getting done under Lindsey Whalen. They changed course and, and went with Don Plitzowite. Think about men's basketball, Richard Patino, same thing when they hired Ben Johnson. Yep. Go for hockey. Like Don Lucia had a certain amount of success here, but things were starting to kind of go on the other side. They go out and get Bob Mosco. Same with go for football. They wanted a new voice in PJ Fleck. This is a much different kind of unique kind of hire. So you, when you lose someone like McCutcheon, you're coming into a completely different situation where you're not like a lot of times when you come into a situation, you're trying to fix something. He's not trying yeah. to fix something. And instead he's like trying to build on something that like <laughs> got to a very high level. And I think that's, that's almost, it's, it's, it's a certain amount of pressure that maybe you don't have when you're coming into something and saying, Hey, uh, if we can just go a little over 500, people are going to be ecstatic because they're so used to this being bad. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, it reminds me, I was thinking about this because one of my favorite uh, tiffs in in recent sports history here in Minnesota was when Jerry Kill would get all upset <laughs> when PJ yeah. would talk about year zero. The culture, like, you, the culture yeah. Yeah, culture. Um, this is, yeah, you're exactly right. It That's why, to me, it is fascinating because w- w- how do you measure success here? What does success look like? Um, and I think in some ways it's incremental. It's not going to be loud. I mean, if they come out and um, beat TCU, beat Baylor, you know, this is not to world build, but it's like, and then they're going into play number one Texas here on Tuesday. And you, you're you going to start feeling these traditional markers of success, right? Like, oh, can they play da, 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 To me, this is still a thing that is in motion, still trying to feel itself out with no real firm footing underneath itself. But because of the past pedigree, and the expectations, I think, that a lot of people have about the Gophers volleyball program, he might quickly be thrust into a situation where the expectations are are far higher than anybody would expect for a first-year coach three games into right. their career. Um, and how he manages that is going to be equally fascinating, how his players manage that. You know, I was talking to Kylie Murr about this, and she was saying that she dealt with a coaching change when she was at Ohio State. And she, she was saying that one of the reasons that she was excited to come here was because she had a history with this. You know, she was going to need to go someplace new no matter what this season. But she also looked at the roster, saw the talent level, and then she sees this new coaching staff. And she was like, not only did she like what she was hearing from them, but she also, I think, liked the role she could play of helping with transitions. Because what she said was, you are going to run into adversity. And when you are brand new, when you are new players, new staff, new teams, all of this stuff, you're going to need to have some real resolve in those moments because this isn't 
you know, this isn't one of those things where if you're losing, it's the expectation. Oh, it's a new right. year. It's a new team. You're going to have to quickly figure out how to fix the problems that you find um, with, you know, what I, what's the roster at 15 players, 14 players that all have high expectations for themselves. So um, watching them on Friday gave me a glimpse of it. I think they're going to be a lot of fun. They have a ton of talent. They're really athletic. You lose Carter Booth and it's like, okay, that's intimidating. Um, but like this Kalissa Minity, who's a freshman, she's super like springy. And uh, Erica Davis is another one. Their middle blockers are like very, very in motion. Um, okay. And, you know, Murr, somewhere this year, you will talk to Kylie Murr. I just know it. She is like, she's the perfect interview. She's like, okay. she sits down next to you. You can kind of feel the room start to vibrate. She's got a ton of energy. She she was talking, not trash, but she was just like questioning the official with like very, very vocally in the middle of the, of an exhibition match. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. She's great. Um, self-assured. She is self-assured. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah, no doubt. And confident. Yeah. Self-assured. Yes. Um. So anyway, uh, this is a long word. I, I just can, I, I just speak in paragraphs when I talk about this team, but um, okay. yeah, I just think that when it comes to the start of the season, it's going to be fascinating to watch how all of these pieces deal with their internal expectations or what cook calls aspirations um, versus the reality of being a new group of people being put into very, this, this non-conference schedule is it's insane. That's an insane non-conference schedule. They could lose six matches. <laughs> it's like, there's, there's yeah. plenty of, there's tons of opportunity for them to really get tested here. Um, so I think we're going to continue to learn a lot about them. Well, and the one similarity I see between Cook and McCutcheon, I think there's more than one, but I feel, it feels like, and this is maybe not uncommon with coaches these days who maybe have a different approach. It's not like the winning is winning is and everything is the only thing kind of, yeah. of coaching style of yesteryear, but he seems very process driven. And, you know, an anecdote from your story, he was kind of, you know, talking about how you can do you can be sloppy, and if it leads still to a successful point, you still need to understand that the process that got you there is flawed, and you need to fix that because it won't always work that way. You're gonna get yes. you're gonna get chewed up by you know the best teams, and you're playing a lot of the best teams. Am I getting the right track? That he seems he seems like a like like McCutcheon. He seems very process driven, and like I said, that's not necessarily uncommon for a coach, but they seem to kind of have that same mentality where. The process will take you to the result you want. He was telling me um, that one of the things that he was trying to do early was uh, build a, uh, a comfortability with this player so that he could start being negative with them. I don't mean negative rude. I mean negative, critical, constructive. Sure. Yeah. And I think that he tries to do that. I didn't go too hard on the analytics side of things in this story because I think he is a he's a kind of a mixture coach of like, you know, some coaches get tabbed with that analytic you know, Rocco Baldelli came in with this mindset and so did Falvey and Levine. You know what I mean? Certain sports just lend themselves to that that kind of labeling. He didn't quite strike me that way. Um, he has an old school mentality of like people first, relationship first, build it from the ground up. And then once you get to know each other, once you get to trust each other, now I'm going to attack you <laughs> with what's going wrong. And we're going to use, they have this... Um, coach of theirs who, I mean, his name is Sankey Sani, and I'm going to forget his title right now, but he is a really cool young man um, who does all of their data analysis. Okay. And he produces instantaneous statistical analysis of what they're doing. I'm talking in practice. So he's, we're talking about practice. He's sitting not there. A game. With, <laughs> not a game. <laughs> not a game. 
but I was wa- I was watching one of their fall practices, and he's sitting there with his computer charting every touch, just in real time. I mean, he's a wizard. And then Cook is coming over to him in the break, asking, "What was our uh, serve our serve air percentage during these drills?" I mean, it's not even serve a- air percentage. Wow. Like yes. I- I'm like, okay, so I, I I love getting into the weeds on data and I haven't really, I've tried on volleyball a couple of times. I think I asked McCutcheon about it several years ago, but like, I think the sports where there's, where they, where it's so fluid, I feel like it's sometimes hard to get good data because so many things depend on so many other things. So I love serve error percentage because that is very, you can isolate that. That is something you can definitely isolate. Yes. And that, well, and he also was doing attack error percentage, which is, you know, they kind of look at. I think the way that they would describe it is when you have an attack that should be effective, what are our air percentages on those hits? When are the hits not land? So they're very detailed. And Sankey does this work where he showed me once this create. Someday I'm going to write a story about him, about the, how rare it is that the ball touches a body in a, in a volleyball match. It's this thing that I continue to be fascinated by because it speaks to how, just like you're saying, analysis of the sport is difficult because the, the it is so fluid. Everything is right. always in movement. That's where I think Cook fits in with this analytic mindset because he tries to dig down into those microseconds. When I was in that film session, I am not kidding you. When I am talking millisecond, 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 image, 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 where are your feet? Where is your body? Where are your arms? What are you doing out here? What is happening to you in this position? And all the girls are sitting there. And I talked to McKenna Wooker about this one day. I was like, what's it like to go to school and have the subject be you, you know, and you're just taking in data about your own performance all the time. But they seem to thrive in that arena if the relationship is strong enough to feel comfortable to build and to say that we're just trying to get to a place where you're operating at your peak. So the differentiation between him and Hugh, I think is really early. I think it's difficult to say. I think that they are cut from a similar cloth um, in terms of that core thing being personal before success driven before, you know, whatever kind of metric you want to use for how you define collegiate athletics and what it means to be successful. I do think they both come from that place of, I want to have a feeling of meaning something to these athletes that's beyond just being, you know, wins and losses and stuff like that. So I think that's, that will play out, but I do think his, he, he does seem deeply analytical and, um, and he's excited by that, you know, which I, I, I refuse to call people some of the derogatory terms we use for mathematical minded people, but there is something <laughs> about a person who's really excited about yep. numbers and that kind of stuff. And they've got a good staff to work with it. So um, yeah, to me, it's just, it's as exciting as any sporting hire we've had in a long time because of all of these um, just unique elements to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Final thing, Jeff day, before I let you go, um, you know, we've talked kind of about, Killer schedule. The big once you get to the Big Ten play, it doesn't let up, obviously, because some of the best teams in the country they're still ranked in the top ten. They've got a lot yeah. of good players coming back. I mean, process takes you so far. The results are sometimes you know more or less what you're judged on, especially by the people who just go and attend the matches. What's a reasonable expectation for a first year coach who had tons of success at Washington, who's replacing yeah. a very highly respected respected coach with a lot of good players still on this roster. Like what, what do you think is a reasonable, like tangible result at the end of this season? At the end of the season to, I think that their expectations are as high as they come. Um, I think trying for me to predict that is very, would be stupid. Um, But everybody I talk to, uh, 
This is something that's a little bit different, at least outwardly, expression from the team and from the coaching staff, that they have those very high expectations of trying to, by the time they get into conference play, being a much better team than they are today, ready to contend for a conference title, ready to contend for an NCAA championship, ready to host two rounds of the NCAA, you know, four rounds, excuse me, four rounds of the NCAA tournament, getting back to that level of, you know, a top three, four team in the country. But again, what happens if it gets sloppy early or things aren't clicking right away? How do they respond to that? I don't know. I mean, he told me, I won't, I'm not going to share like the things that he is specifically, I'm not trying to like ruin his secrets of how he wants to start his career here, but there is an element of, he views the start of the season as being a time, and this is in the story, be good, not perfect. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Early on, if the team shouldn't be striving to be playing apex type all the time, it's like you need to understand each other. So be solid, do your best work, but don't get too caught up in trying to be over the top. Um, I think that's something that maybe he's, I picked up on a little bit of, you know, him saying that players were showing an over eagerness to perform, I guess, as I'm finding words in my own brain to describe mm-hmm. what he was saying. Um. And so I think what he wants in these early matches is just establish your stuff, get us to a good base level. And you, his feeling is that early in the season, you can win matches by just being steady, find that steady space and then grow into the ultimate form of what this can be. But like Kylie Murr told me, she's like, this is my final, this is my final stretch in college volleyball. I'm here for one reason and one reason only. I don't think anybody can look at the talent on this team and say, there's any reason that they shouldn't at the very minimum be able to compete for a big 10 title to compete with Nebraska and Wisconsin, who are also, you know, juggling big lineup changes and trying to figure out new players on their rosters. Um, they'll play Stanford early. Stanford is, I think most people, even though I think they might be third in the ABCA poll, a lot of people think Stanford's the best team in the country because they return everybody. Um, and so that'll be a good litmus test. We'll see early. Okay, where yeah, and of course they're gonna play number one, Texas. That will be a good litmus test. And course, Baylor yes. on Saturday will be a good everybody. Litmus. Yeah, everybody's a good litmus test. The crazy thing to me is that their Big Ten schedule has some breathing room in it, which hasn't been the case because they only play Wisconsin once. You know, that that provides you a little bit of breathing room. Um, they get Nebraska home and home, which I think will be really exciting. Um, and I, I don't know, but I would say at the end of the year, their expectations, aspirations are that they're going to be one of the best volleyball teams in the country and they're going to be able to sit there and say we have a chance to win a title no different than it was last year um and that's a that's a that's an accomplishment on its own in its own right that they can say right here start of the season this team is good enough has the talent to if we can put it together we should be able to play with anybody nope that's the program they have built those are the expectations they have set and season starts friday i will look forward to watching it reading about your coverage of it um jeff day appreciate it as always and we'll talk to you soon All right. Thank you. Good stuff from Jeff Day. Love talking volleyball with him, among other things. And like we said, that season starts Friday against TCU. Baylor right after that. Those games at the Maturi Pavilion. Good chance to go see that team early. And then the Big Ten season um, will obviously be a great one as well. Lots of great teams in that conference. So looking forward to that season. And Jeff always does a great job writing about that team and talking about them. Let us finish with the cooler. If you haven't read it yet, Patrick Royce did a terrific job handling a very tough story. Gustavus Adolphus women's hockey team <clears throat> you probably saw at some point this week horrific car crash claimed the life of one player and three others injured in that uh, in that accident 
Go read that story, StarTribune.com. Patrick uh, handles these things really well with empathy and with uh, with typical Patrick writing style. Just I, I can't even imagine just kind of the the emotions in this in this situation. I'm I'm just I'm really I'm shaken up by it. Just reading about it, just as some you know as a dad, these all these young players, 19, 20 years old, just a terrible terrible story, but a, a tale well told. The humanity of it all by Patrick Royce. So go check that out, please, if you get a chance. That will do it for today. Expecting to talk to Adrian Heath, Minnesota United manager, later this week for a show, as well as Ben Feldman, the uh, head coach and founder of the Minnesota Windchill. Big ultimate uh, ultimate championships this weekend at uh, TCO Stadium. Uh, Minnesota is in the semifinals, those games on Friday, the championship on Saturday, and that whole weekend out at TCO at, uh, at Egan, the Vikings, uh, Vikings practice headquarters in that stadium. So expecting to have that later this week as well. Until then, I'm Michael Rand, back at it again on Thursday. <laughs>